You're listening to Don't Try This At Home. I tell my story, I say, but don't try this at home. Because <laughs> it's not going to be in your business books. And probably it usually won't work. In our case, we're lucky that it's But it's work. working. And when it works, it's a lot of fun. On this show, Mustafa and I are going to be dissecting the inspirational story behind how Logistics Plus started. Who you just heard is Jim Berlin. He's the founder and CEO of Logistics Plus. We will find out how a cabana boy turned into a communist and later on became a truck driver with a big mouth that gets him fired. And finally, the founder of nearly half a billion dollar company that has offices in more than 30 countries. I know, it seems more of a Hollywood blockbuster movie than this regular New Yorker's life, but I can promise you this was a journey of unconventional ways. So buckle up because it's not going to be a smooth ride. When I was preparing for this podcast, I went on Google, put your name in there, and I read so many articles about your success story and how you created Logistics Plus. What I really want to get into is how you started, like the very beginning, your childhood, New York, <laughs> Cabana. And when he texted me Cabana, I literally had no idea what Cabana right? is. Right. I went on Google and it was like a bunch of shirtless men, and I was like, what? I'm hoping this is like a beach waiter kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, beach exactly. Okay. So it was like in around the 1950s, your 60s. Or <laughs> I was in the 2000s. You were, <laughs> you were a teenager. 67 to 69. 67 to 69. Crazy times. Civil rights, the war in Vietnam, all kinds of things happened. Woodstock. Woodstock. I literally would say Woodstock. All kinds of things happening back then. So it was a, it was a fun, crazy time to grow up. And I got caught up in, in the 60s. So when I was 15, I got a job at one of the local beach clubs in Atlantic Beach, okay. Long Island. I got to be a, a chair boy. And I started out to move, bring the chairs out for the people who came and setting them up on the beach. And I graduated to Cabana Boy in, in the summer of 69. And you have 10 cabanas and you take care of the people there. But it's fun. <laughs> the girls all love you because you, you got tan. You, right. We're all football players, so you all were in good shape. Wow. Uh, we had uniforms and it was a very fun. Didn't you almost get in a fight? You told me one time. Yeah, those are like a couple of crazy stuff. Like yeah. Crazy. So how was your family? Like, like what, what did your parents do? Did you have siblings? Yeah. We actually, so we, we did grow up in a, an apartment house right by the train tracks, the Long Island Railroad tracks. Train tracks. That, that's when it's yeah, going to come yeah, in later in yeah. life. Yeah. In, La in Lawrence, New York. And uh, interesting childhood. My dad was a wholesaler for a textile business. His father had a business in the 20s and 30s, and when the Depression hit, my dad, my grandfather, lost his business. Okay. Uh, and he had a tough go of it. He lost everything and never recovered. Wow. It turned out, the other thing I learned is my dad, uh, and this is all theory, but I think because they lost everything, mm -hmm. I think that whole generation from the Depression was very fiscally conservative. Mm -hmm. My dad was not poor. I mean, sales guys, so some of you have better than others. Right. But like when he died, he had half a million bucks in, in the bank saved up. But he didn't have to live as poor, but I think because he lost everything as a kid, he just never wanted to be in that position again to have to put his family through that. That's why he never bought a house. He worked all his life until he was 81 and never bought a house. Lived in an apartment his whole life. We, our, our place by the tracks, when I say by the tracks, are the back of our apartment house. So the trains would go by all the time, loud as hell, 
We were five minutes from JFK Airport, so planes would go by. So when kids would stay over our, our apartment for the night, they couldn't hear the TV at all. And we didn't even notice it. Like, plus there was white noise. But it, it was loud all the time. We just never thought wow. about it, you know? That's crazy. Yeah, that's that was like was, foreshadowing your life. People don't realize how crazy the 60s were. They didn't live through it. Right. And I was like deeply involved in it. So, <laughs> so I learned some things back then that kind of come back later in life. Uh -huh. The civil rights movement, like, like so long I said, we live by the tracks. Well, we live on the white side of the tracks. And there's tracks, and there's black side of the tracks. I had a very mixed cultural group, and we grew up, you know, Italians and Irish and um, Puerto Rican, I mean, a lot of different groups there. And we, so I've always been easily accepted in and, and friendly with all groups. So I never got into the racist stuff that really happened a lot. In our senior year, um, we had a really good intramural basketball league at our school. Oh, some good athletes. And our, our high school was like really good. But even the intramural level was talented athletes. And all the teams in the league were either all black or all white. Except for us. We, we call ourselves the Bombers. And there was five black guys and five white guys. And we were like really proud of that. That meant a lot to us. Right. And every, every team hated us. Both sides hated us. And we won the we won the league. Wow. I was not good, but we won the league. So that was kind of cool. And it was like it was it was never a racist racist thing, but it was overtones of people wanted to beat us because right. we didn't buy into the racial separation thing. So one night we're driving home after the game. This is 1969, and we're in a, a, a Camaro, my friend owned. And I'm sitting in the back, and there's three three white guys, two black guys in the car, and we're 17, 17 years old. And all of a sudden, this, this Mustang and like starts kind of like kind of racing, intimidating. And finally, they cut us off. So like we know what's going on. And these long-haired guys, plain-clothes guys, but they're undercover cops. We didn't know that. They get out of the car. Now, this, is, this is all no Nothing I tell you in this will be bullshit. It's all freaking true. And and they got caught off guard a little bit and backed off. But they were gonna plant that and freaking arrest us just because it was license. Yeah. yeah, we weren't doing anything. License registrations. My buddy David's. Show him that, and there's another guy standing in, in, on this side of the car, and he has a light in there. And all of a sudden, I see him drop, and, I, and not being a hero, not being brave, I just reacted, hey, what's that? And it was a bag of weed. And I threw it back, hey, what are you doing? Probably drinking wine. So, <laughs> you know, nothing, you know, yeah. nothing bad. But that, wow. So at an early age, I learned, okay, things are not as they are, always seem to be. Be, right. be a little care, careful. So I, you know, I learned that lesson there. And then another side of the 60s, this is another crazy true story, but I took our, I don't know if it was our ACT or SAT, some test we think, mm -hmm. for college. And I go in and I was probably stoned. And I, I, it's a three hour test and it's got all, all these questions. And this is no problem. I just, I wrote, like there's a song, I think by Judy Collins and Sandy Dennis wrote, goes, who knows where the time goes. So I wrote the words of the song, which I remembered. And I said, I just, this song's really touched me. And I kind of just wrote like a free flow, how, you know, who knows where the time goes, essay, right? Yeah. I got a 4.0. Now, the only way you can get a 4.0 test like that is because probably the, the person, the college person is, that's judging the test, marking the test, probably some hippie. Well, I got into, uh, I applied to three schools. I only got into one of them. I applied to Brown in Providence and to Michigan. And I applied to UB as my safe school. <laughs> I got to, I said, that's not so safe for me. I, said, yeah, I took a chance. I really didn't care. Are you trying to go so, to Michigan, huh? Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, I gave such a little thought to it. You know? <laughs> but I get into UB. And um, so I get, to, I get to Buffalo. The guy, back then it was only the Main Street campus. And we pull up on Main Street. 
guy drops me off. It was like freshman orientation day, so it was like a big party on the grass. And I get out, and some guy in a hat with a feather and an animal skin coat and a beard down here walks up to me and goes, Welcome, my child, and holds up a tab of something. And I, eh, <laughs> out. And he goes, so no. I said, I should have known. No. They wanted. This is science. This education is not going to go well. <laughs> and I, I later got the guy's name, the Amos Porges. I got to know him. Later How on. was the rest of the story, though? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that was like my first class. Yeah, this guy, man, I, at the time, I didn't think anything of it. But it was probably, somebody watching would have said, yeah, this is an indication. School's not going to go very well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just open your mouth. What made you decide to like this? I, I need to like peace out of here. That was, yeah, that was like the 60s. That was like, that's the way things were back then. Really? So when I had to register for the draft for 18. So and I was actually, I wasn't that anti-war. I mean, I was screwed up that I felt that way. But like at the time, I was not like radically against it. But it, but it seemed pretty crazy. And, and so you have to go register for the draft. So I'd gotten involved in a bunch of radical stuff. And so when I went to register for the draft, downtown in the Elegant Square building in Buffalo, I go up to the second floor and, and you have to fill out this form. And one of the questions on the form is, uh, who can contact you if you need you in 24 hours? So usually you put your mom or your dad or your brother or your wife or whatever. <laughs> so I put, I put J. Edgar Hoover, FBI, Washington, D.C. And the guy said, you, you, know, you can't say that. I said, come here. I said, see that black car out there? I said, go ask them who they are and what they're doing here. So he gets this big cop at the door, and the cop goes down, like finally, five minutes later, he comes back and goes. <laughs> <laughs> so I was on my, if you find an old draft uh, registration, it'll say Jay Hoover's the guy. Because I had gotten in radical in, the, in between. Back in high school, though, it was, it was student strikes. I helped run the student union we had. Really? Yeah, so it was just, I was, I've always been, like, I don't, I don't know about radical. Involved. Uh, involved, yeah, involved. Yeah. Always been involved, and I took a radical turn. And it's funny because, yeah, I read like uh, the Communist Manifesto and I read Plato's Republic and I read things in high school that were you know, socialist leaning. And my dad, who every year I realized how much smarter he was than I realized he was <laughs> at the time, he said, those are good theories. He said, but human nature won't allow that. Mm. And I said, if I had listened to him back then, I would have said like 15 years of shit that I, that I went through that I didn't have to go through. But you don't listen to your dad when he's... Famous Mark Twain quote, he says, I left home when I was 17 because my father was so dumb. When I got home five years later, I was surprised how much he had learned. <laughs> yes, I just read it actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I mean, you realize how, how much dads know and moms know. Exactly. Mustafa was like preaching all like theories and this is how the world yeah. should be. And my dad was like, mm, yeah. So now, you know, so my kids, have got, you know, I mean, when you're young, you get crazy ideas. So I try to tell them and they don't listen to me either. So, okay, <laughs> I feel I'm like not, everyone has to go through that yeah, time, right, yeah, you know? So. You have to live it, yeah. When I, got, when I got to college, um, SDS was the big student movement, Students for a Democratic Society, and I got involved in that. Okay. And as is usually the case, I got involved, I didn't just put my toe in the water, I dove in head first. Like, I wow. Really I'm an idiot. <laughs> I got everything on um, But, you know, it was, a, it, it was a good movement, it was against the war, it was for equality, women's equality, and racial equality, all that stuff. And, this is in the fall of 1969, mm -hmm. and, we, and it's funny because there's always politics and everything. So in the student movement, SDS, it was like the softer wing. Mm -hmm. A lot of people that were involved in the, in the movement and tried to steer what we thought was a smarter path. So I got exposure to a lot of like really 
involved people, and I kind of liked it, and lived on with a bunch of college students and wow. others from Buffalo, and went down to Washington for a big demonstration, I think October 15th of 1969, and it was a big riot. So it's funny, because, not funny, but it's like the Capitol stuff that just happened on January 6th. Right. Reminded me of us When back you were then. writing, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we were... And so I know, I don't get the politics of it, mm-hmm. but I know how this shit works. And I know that what happens is, you know, it's the old Mao Zedong, use, use the masses as the, as the ocean to move in. And so just, I think what happened in Washington was a lot of people that didn't know what was going on, but there were people in there that, that didn't did. know what was going on, had, right. had, had an agenda, and used them as cover, I think. Because right. we did that, and I think it's wrong both times, but mm-hmm. we did that back in... So it wasn't like spontaneous, there's always someone... It spontaneous. Yeah. So in Washington, there's a million people marching against the war, Mm -hmm. which is a good cause, but some of us wanted to do more than that, so we tried to uh, assault a a building and to burn it down. We didn't didn't succeed. (laughs) Good. But a funny story there. But but there what happened is we had a march on uh, the Saigon Embassy, which was the embassy for South Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So at night, say there's a million people there during the day, we might have had 10,000 to join us for this peaceful march onto the Saigon Embassy, but we didn't want to be peaceful. So we break away from the crowd, we lead this crowd of mostly unknowing, unwitting people. So we had Molotov cocktails and things like that we were going to throw at the building. But we start coming down the DuPont Circle, which is where it's located, and all of a sudden, and these big, giant, probably as big as this room, Lights, so all of a sudden are shining. No. And we're blind. Oh my god! And all we can see is the silhouettes of the helmets of riot police with batons on it, you know, across like this, waiting for us. They we're gonna wade into that. You know? It's over. And they can see us like, yeah, it's over. <laughs> they can't see shit. And they can see us like running. It's daylight, yeah. <laughs> so that was like, oh shit, that wasn't part of the plan. But it's funny because one of the guys that was with us from Buffalo is a guy named Leon Phelps, big big black guy with a scar down his face. He had a, a bottle that I actually stole from, from a stop uh, on the way down a food stop. A, a jar of mayonnaise. Helmut's mayonnaise. I don't know what he wants. I like mayonnaise. I'm standing next to him. What do we do now? And he goes, fuck the motherfucking pigs. And he takes this jar and he runs up and he throws this jar of Helmut's mayonnaise and all hell breaks loose. Right? Oh, he tries to knock on the lights. It doesn't. <laughs> but through tear gas, blah, 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 and we were routed and ended up in the Jim at George Washington University with Richie Haven playing music for us. But it's funny, this Time Magazine, I might be able to find it, Time Magazine had an article, or Newsweek, you know, that un- an unidentified large black man threw an unidentif- unidentified object. And as I know, the guy, I don't know what the object was. You know? Nobody else, nobody else in the world does, you know? I, know. I know what that was. So that was a crazy, uh, crazy moment. Oh my gosh. Um, but anyway, it, it was, that was a, the times were like that back then. Yeah. And, uh, what happened in school is so I started getting involved in the, in the radical teachers. A lot of professors were radicals, and probably the, probably the teacher gave me the A on the on the, that the, song. The that song was probably radical. But, but, you know, that was I, the culture back then. Yeah, like. it was the culture. Yes, and I believed. I mean, I wholeheartedly believed in it. I still think a lot of it was right. I think it was a little bit crazy. Right. But I, I still think anti-war, anti-racism. It started from a good place. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Right. So I think maybe I don't know, November somewhere around the same period in the fall of 69, we were gonna have a, a, a rally on the University of Buffalo campus. 
Okay. Against the war. And so what we did is we had a film, a company called Newsreel made films about the war and the movement and stuff. So we're going to show this film of American bombers bombing the crap out of Vietnamese villages and stuff and say, that's not right. You know, I mean, this is just destruction. And then, and we planned all this in secret, right? Now, okay. the left was very much infiltrated by the cops and the FBI. Uh -huh. and, we, and we know, I know a lot of cases of that. And a lot of times we knew who the infiltrators were. They didn't know we knew. So that kind of helped us. But sometimes I'm sure that we didn't know. But we had these private planning meetings, like 15 or 20 of us. And somehow it never got infiltrated. Those meetings never got infiltrated, which amazes me to this day. So the plan was to be in the, we were in the student union and we filmed about the bombings. And then one of us was there training people to bomb Vietnamese rather rare ROTC in the Clark mm -hmm. Gym on campus. Yeah, we should do something about it. And we had this all planned out. And so we, ah, we get everyone up in arms and we march over to Clark Gym to burn down ROTC. That was our plan. Now, we had spent that whole week recruiting kids from the high schools and stuff from the Buffalo community to come to that rally. Mm -hmm. So I was, the guys would go around to the high schools and talk in classes and assemblies about anti-war and, and the, you know, the movement and stuff. And there's a guy named Frank Sardinia who was a, a vet who went with me to couples who went to Sweet Home High School and a couple others. Well, so we, we lead this group of, again, unwitting poor people who kept suckering into stuff to give us cover as we went Sorry, through. before that, you so you said you talked in classes? Yeah. So were teachers were like fine with you going there and be like, okay, we're going to burn the ROTC? No, we didn't say, no, no, no. Oh, no. it we was going to the rally. Uh, we're going to do, we're just going to, oh, you cut that part out. Yeah. We're just going to rally. No, no, the, yeah, that, the, the second part of the plan was again, just like the Saigon Embassy. So us. that was like the cover for, right. okay, let's just go rally. Right. Okay. So we ran the rally and then hopefully and that's how people fed into the, hopefully they join up and get right. charged up and join <laughs> But you know, just getting kids to come and talking against the war, I mean, that was, it wasn't so much if we can get people to cover us. It's we believed in this cause. Right. We wanted high school kids to come. You're going to be the next to go over there and die. You're like, let's put a stop to this. Exactly. So that part was all right. But this Frank Sardini and I were in the lead of the march towards the gym. Mm -hmm. So we get to the gym, and several of us have Molotov cocktails in our jackets, in our pockets. And we get there, and the gym is locked. Not only is the gym locked, but it's old stone building, only big stones, and the door is like this you know, medieval like prison door. It's a big, oh, wow. thick, eight or ten foot high wooden door with bars on it. What is and the mayonnaise bottle gonna do now? Well, yeah, <laughs> right, well, yeah. How, how do you get in, right? We get there, and again, just like in, in Washington, like we think well, that didn't work. We're gonna go home. But Frank, the guy was with the whole day before, he, the big guy, he gets down in a blocking stance, and he starts boom. So it's like coming up and hitting the door with his elbow. Oh. He's got an army jacket on. Hits it, hits it. It's, a, it's an oak door. I mean, it's not going anywhere. Hits it, hits it. His jacket starts to fray. His arm starts to bleed. He's and he keeps. I'm sitting right next to him. And finally, it starts to crack. And finally, he breaks it through this thing. Wow. Reaches in, opens the door. We go in. We try to set the Molotov cocktails. They didn't go off. What <laughs> happened? But the funny thing is, Frank Sardinia was a Buffalo cop. Why did he do all of that, though? I know, that's the funny part. I mean, from his point of view, I can see, I gotta do this to prove I'm with these guys. Because he probably worries that 
Maybe they know I'm a Buffalo cop. I'm undercover. So but many so, ways to go yeah, about I mean, it. You watch some of these movies, though, and you, yeah. you, know, you watch Reservoir Dogs. When you see, like, undercover cops, it's a yeah. tough gig. You've got to be with the bad guys. you got to win their respect. you got to, a lot of times, pass tests. There's a lot. Of, it gets very gray and right. murky in, in that world, undercover. So I don't knock it. Like, right. I get why he might have done that. My point is that, and that was our defense, actually. We would <laughs> later on go to trial. He enabled us to get in and commit a crime. Yeah. If he doesn't do that, we don't, and there's, now I come back and say, maybe not. But, but you could have turned back like you turned We would have turned back, we would have yeah. turned back. So it's, it's, so it's entrapment. And it wasn't total entrapment because we wanted to do it, but we couldn't do it, but you then broke down the door to get us in. Exactly. So that later comes into play with the trial. But just, it shows you how murky things were back then. It's a very so, gray area. There's no, yeah. I feel like there's no right and wrong in it, but. Yeah. but it's, yeah, just stay away from it. That's the yeah, exactly. But this guy, he doesn't, if he doesn't break down the door to get into the RPC to burn mm -hmm. it down, we don't get in. So yeah. you guys were at the gym. It's very awkward now because the Molotovs didn't go off. Right. <laughs> okay, so then so I'm down, down in New York City. There was there were riots, not riots, a demonstration rallies at Columbia University. My, I, now, now my grandfather had gone and now my son was, had gone later, went there later. But that was a big center of activity for the anti-war movement. So we're down there, and it's probably December or January of 69 or 70. Back then, there's no cell phone, so you'd go, go to a phone at your friend's house, and I check in back at home, and anyway, I call Mike Riley, and he says, hey, hold on a second, someone's at the door. He says, holy shit, it's the FBI, they're looking for you. Oh. Gold! So, oh shit, I better not go back there. And this is all for the, the Clark Jim thing, wow. the RTC thing. So there was warrants out for our arrest, and uh, like, facing 23 years of criminal major charges. And man, I don't want to do that. So we ended up not going back to Buffalo. I took a detour, so. Good. <laughs> Keep it that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, was, it was pretty crazy. So you were, you were 17 at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm still 17. And the FBI has a warrant for your arrest? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. In the next episode, Jim gets himself in some trouble and ends up in the Middle East for quote-unquote freedom fighting so if you thought the first episode was wild just wait until the next one until then see you next time and don't try this at home <laughs>